And I hope you brought it. I hope you'll open it. And I want you to keep it open because we've got several other verses after I read what I'm going to read to you to talk to you a little bit about. Let me just tell you, I mentioned to you it's a, it's a challenging passage. It's actually a parable. Some call it a parable, parable of the vineyard. Some might would call it a, a song of, of the vineyard. Uh, others call it a, a message of judgment. There's no doubt that judgment's in your face in, in what we're going to be talking about. Gang, let me, let me kind of tell you what I, as I, as I studied it, kind of put it together, let me kind of tell you what I sensed out of it. Um, it's, it's like the writer Isaiah is, is building to a point where he slams the nation Israel in the face. He, he's building up this idea about the vineyard and the problem with the vineyard and what's going on in the vineyard and the, the problems that uh, the vineyard's having. And then at the right moment, after he, he talks about the expectation that's gone bad and the frustration, we'll, we'll talk about all of that, then he kind of looks them in the face and he kind of sticks a finger, I think, in their face and he says, Israel, you're the vineyard. It's kind of like David. I, Nathan and David, the prophet Nathan, do you remember the story? David was caught in adultery with Bathsheba, and he covered it up for a year and tried to cover it up and cover it up and cover it up, and Nathan the prophet comes and gives him a parable. And David really gets enraged by the parable, and he gets real angry about what's going on with that. And, 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 then, and then Nathan looks at him and he says, uh, David, uh, you're that guy. Well, what we're going to study today is a song of the vineyard, but the vineyard has meaning. The vineyard is Israel, okay? Now, I want to be careful that we don't lose the context. This song, this parable, is about Israel, God to Israel. Don't, don't forget that, okay? It's not about the United States of America to God. However, there's a lot of parallels. The, the challenge of Bible study is to take Bible truth and apply Bible truth to everyday life, right? And so what I want to be careful of is this, this is Israel and God. But at the same time, there's so many parallels and there's so many applications to the United States. So you're going to hear me, hopefully, if the Spirit allows me to, over the course of, of the message to, to draw together where we are as a nation, where they were then, where we are today, okay? The bottom line, I think, that I want to kind of zero in as we begin is this, that if there's not a radical change, gang, if a radical change does not take place in the United States of America, then judgment upon our land is imminent. You hear me? Now, let me just be real open with you. There are some theologians, some, some pastors today who, uh, I better leave that, who, um, who says that, that judgment has already begun. There are those, John MacArthur, who I value highly, believes that, that God's hand of judgment, which means God's restraint, has already been taken away and the hand of judgment has already begun on our nation. I don't know that, okay? I'm not smart enough to know that. What I do know and what I believe with all of my heart is what we're going to see and read here and what we're going to talk about applies to the United States 
just like it applied to Israel back then. And if there's not a radical change, then I believe our nation is in for some severe disciplining or if not discipline, judgment, okay? Now, let me, before we read, let, let, me, let me share with you something that I, I think it's important. It's easy for us to decry the, the corrupting culture we live in. We do that a lot, okay? We read the papers, we see TV, and we, we see all that stuff going on, and it's easy for us to decry what we're seeing in, in our culture, um, but we don't want to apply it to ourselves. We, uh, we sometimes even will even decry uh, the corrupting influence uh, in our church, in our churches today, okay? Um, but then we don't want to apply it to ourselves. And what I want you to know, gang, with love, what I want you to know is while we're going to be talking about the nation and while we're going to deal with issues of the nation, the fact of the, nation, the, fact of the matter is a nation is made up of people. The church is made up of people. And so what I want you to know is you're the people. You're the nation. You're the church. It's kind of like the idea, I, I don't know if you get these things, but I, I get these things all the time about going paperless in my bills, you know. If we all go paperless, we're going to save 5 billion trees a year or whatever it is, you know. Well, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. I say, you know, if everybody in the United States of America would go paperless, we would save the environment, and I like that. But you know what the problem is? I have trouble signing up for that because I want to look at my bill. I want to see my bill. And so in, in, a, in a spiritual sense, it's really easy for us to say, man, we have got a mess out there, and we do, but not apply it to myself. In other words, when I share this message today, you may go out of here and not change one thing and not be convicted about one thing in your life and then go back right out in the culture and say, we got a bad corrupting culture. And we say, yeah, you do, but you're corrupted yourself. You got a problem. And the fact is, gang, everybody in this room has a problem. And until we're willing to be honest with that, or until we're willing to deal with that, then there's not going to be any change. I don't know how many it's going to take for us to turn back to God. God's never said that we have to be in the majority, his people. And in fact, I, Christians have never been in the majority, have we? But somewhere in the course of the events of our nation, as we grow our kids and as we see our grandchildren growing, somewhere, someplace, we've got to stand up and say, not me, not my house. As for me and my house, as Joshua said, we're going to serve God. And somewhere in the course of enough of us standing up, then God perhaps would be pleased to put the hedge back and bring the blessing back. Are you with me on that? So this is pointed, okay? Uh, but it's important. Let's stand. Uh, Isaiah 5. Um, we're going to read verses 5 through 7. But be sure to keep your Bible open because there's some other things I'm going to point out in the story, okay? Isaiah 5, beginning verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song. That's why some say it's not a parable, it's a song. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And he dug all around, removed its stones, 
and planted it with the choicest vine. That's Sorek. I'm going to talk about Sorek vines. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Some call that evil grapes. Some call it, some even said it stinky grapes. That technically it's kind of a, what's called a wolf grape. Okay, it's a bad grape, a stinky grape. Now, let me, it wasn't that they weren't producing. Hear that. They were producing. But where they were supposed to be producing good, high quality, what was being produced was bad, stinky. So it was producing, but it was producing bad. Don't miss that, gang, because it's important when it comes to economics. It's important when it comes to God controlling weather. For example, if something's going to be produced but it's bad, why would God send rain so that it could produce if it's going to produce bad? Does that make sense? That's kind of the idea, okay? Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What? These are rhetorical questions that you really don't even answer them because they're obvious. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Now, verse 5, it changes from a love story to an indictment. So now he, he becomes the judge. So now let me tell you what I'm about to do, what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I'm going to break down its wall. It will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It won't be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. And you can almost have a sense where they're getting emotionally caught up. And then he, verse 7, he zaps them. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is a house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant, thus he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, a cry of distress. Father, help us today to dig out your word, to apply it to our life, to change our church, to change our family, and hopefully to, enough of us to change our culture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks. Be seated. Now, the gang, I, we know that we live in challenging times. We know that righteousness and godliness is being redefined to make it acceptable and to help us feel less guilty, okay? Let me just kind of give you some, a couple statistics. There's a lot of them, things I could share about it, and, but you already know, but let me just pull out a couple, okay? January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court legalized abortion. And we changed the name of that to make it choice, okay? So our system says that it is okay to kill 3,500 unborn babies a day. We say in our nation that it's okay to kill 1.3 million children a year. Now, gang, listen, what 
may be legal is not always necessarily moral in God's sight. I, as I studied and read about that, I, I saw where conservatively 93%, but more likely 97% of abortions today is because of... By the way, if you've had an abortion, male or female, let me tell you, God loves you and God forgives. If it wasn't for grace, we're all in a ditch. Amen? So this is not about people. This is about a system that's gone awry, okay? And so I just want you to know if you've struggled, God bless you. We help you. We love you. But listen, if 93 conservatively to 97% of abortions today are because of inconvenience, I submit to you we got a problem. Now listen, we might argue rape. We might argue incest. We might argue possible health issues. But if 97% is because of inconvenience, then gang, we have a spiritual problem. We have a moral problem in our nation today. Now, let me balance that because that's a social end. Let me talk about the preacher end. As I read this week, I read where a study was done. It was reported that 50% of preachers today, half of the men that's going to stand in a pulpit and take God's word or at least stand, half of them don't even even in the Bible probably, but half of them that are going to stand and address an audience today, half of them do not have a worldview that is called a biblical worldview. Half of the preachers today do not believe there's such a thing as moral truth that there is a right and that there's a wrong, and the right and the wrong is given to us through the holy, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Now, I want to submit to you that if 50% of the preachers in our day and age don't believe in moral truth, then how is it possible that our churches are going to survive, and if our churches don't survive, how is it possible that our nation is going to survive? Why should we expect anything different than what this song says about Israel? You tracking with me? Okay. Israel was sliding and then we're going to slide into judgment, and I'll address that. Is it possible that America is sliding the same way? Now, let me point out three things to you. I want you to look with me in verse 1 and 2, okay? In verse 1 and 2, we, we see the, the expectation of the landowner. Okay, nothing's sadder than expectations gone bad, Right? Families have experienced that. The reason that I'm so ingrained in our preteen boys, I, Sunday nights, someone said, well, you don't even have church anymore on Sunday. Yeah. No, I, 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 I gather with a group of men, and we sit down with fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, at least the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders that the parents would get off their butts and let them bring them to us, you know, so that we can teach them about God's Word. 
We spend an hour or so with them teaching them the things of God. Because we know that after we're gone, after we're dead and gone, it might just do some good for their lives. And there's nothing sadder than to see a precious child that glows with honesty and glows with joy to grow up to be a 16, 17, and an 18-year-old boy that's hardened to the ways of God and it becomes, becomes so ingrained with the things of the world and all of a sudden what is right becomes wrong and what's wrong becomes right and their whole lives are messed up. Nothing sadder than the expectations gone bad. Here we have expectations gone bad. Three times God uses the word beloved. He loves the vineyard. He loves Israel. He had great expectations for Israel. Now, I want you to notice with me as we walk through the first few verses of what he did. He positioned the vineyard. He, he, he put it on a fertile hill where it would be seen, where the sun would shine on it and nourishment and had the best opportunity to produce fruit. He prepared the vineyard. He removed the obstacles, the stones that would hinder the growing. He, he, he made it possible for the plows to do their planting work. He planted the vineyard. He, he planted soric vines, the best known grapes of the time. They had the potential to, to produce the biggest the richest, the best-tasting groups, uh, grapes in all the land. In fact, the patience of the landowner is shown because sometimes it would take two, more likely three years for all of this to be ready to produce. So he had to clear it out. He had to plant it. He had to dig it out. He had to remove the stones, and he had to wait. And he waited for three years for fruit to be produced. He protected the vineyard. The Bible tells us in these verses that he, he put a tower in the middle. That tower would watch for invaders and predators. It was a hedge of protection around his beloved vineyard. He provided for the vineyard. He, he dug a vat for the harvest that would surely come. Such was the love of the sovereign for his vineyard. His handprint was all over the vineyard. Gang, listen, the handprint of God is all over Israel. We better stand with him. The handprint of God. Is all has been all over the United States of America. There's the expectation of the landowner. Now, secondly, look, look with me beginning verse 3 and 4, okay? Let's talk a little bit about the frustration of the landowner. His expectation gave way to frustration. Instead of Soric grapes, there were worthless grapes. The word means wild. Some call it poison fruit. Now, in verse 3 and 4, notice, notice how, how he handles it. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done? What have I not done that I could have done? Why, when the expectation was good, why did it produce worthless? As the nation listens... The landowner laments, what was wrong? What more could I have done? And in fact, there were, there's only two possibilities here, you know. It was me or you. That's what he's saying, okay? Either I messed up or you messed up. 
And with these rhetorical questions, he's wanting them to know that he did not mess up. I've done everything I could. The intention was good fruit, everything for good fruit, but nothing happened. And so he's lamenting, okay? Now, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to leave the story. Keep your Bibles open. Let me leave the story, and we'll come back to it. And I'll tell you why I want to leave it. It's because, as I said earlier, something was produced, but instead of good, it was bad. So they did do something, and it was all poison. It was all evil. What was it? Then let's ask ourselves, well, if they did produce, then what was it that they produced? If bad fruit was produced, then what did the clusters look like? As God inspired Isaiah to write this, beginning in verse 8, all the way through almost to the end of the, the chapter there, we find a series of woes. There's six woes. Now, your Bible might have alas, alas. And then we find four therefores. Therefores are summary statements that causes action. You do this, therefore, I'm going to do that, okay? Now, the word woe that's used there is a word of a funeral, a funeral lament, okay? It's a word of deep sorrow, of regret, even anger, okay? Woe indicates that a death is imminent, that death is coming, okay? So let's look at the woes. This is what they produced. Here's the six clusters. Look at verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. The, the first woe was misguided possessions. Again, listen, God's not opposed, not against blessings, but God is against greed. And one of the faults of a capitalistic society, it's the best system there is, but one of the faults of a capitalism is that when without restraints and without guidelines, without godliness and righteousness, we find greed begin to take over. There's greed within our nation. There's greed within our churches. And there's greed within our homes. The rich were adding and adding and adding, and they were adding at the expense of those they should have been helping. Instead of giving, they were taking, and they were adding more and taking from the ones they should have been helping. It's the woe of possessions. Verse 11 is the second woe, and it's the woe of pleasure. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. The sin of indulgence, of never having enough, always wanting more, always having this drive, this urge for more and more pleasure without even recognizing where it comes from and how it's to be treated. The third woe is in verse 18. The woe, I call it perception. Look at verse 18 for a moment. Woe to those who drag iniquity, iniquity with the cords of falsehood and, and sin as if with cart ropes. What, what that means is that they were spiritually dull. They had so persisted in their sin, they became cynics. They even dared God to take action. They had gotten so seared in their desires and what they were doing, they were almost shaking a fist at God. And they were saying to God, hey, God, come take action. Spiritually, spiritually dull. Does that sound like America? Number four, verse 20 is the, is the, the, the woe of, of purity. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, instead of daring God to act, now they're saying there's no such thing as sin. That's what they're doing. We're just going to change the terms. Oh, we'll change the names. We're going to come up with what's right in our own eyes. We're going to come up with our own morality. We're going to come up with our own standards. We're going to come up with our own uh, uh, morality and authority is what is going on. And the sovereign says, woe, woe to your purity. Number five, verse 21, is pride. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. It's either pride or humility. When pride takes over, there's arrogance. When arrogance takes over, then God acts. Gang, listen to me. Uh, I'm not as young as I used to be. I'm not as old as I hope to be. Uh, But I've been preaching a long time now. Never have I seen arrogance in pulpits that I've seen in the last five to seven or eight years. Never have I seen people stand in pulpits on holy ground taking a holy book and distorting it for their own good. And I want to tell you, if the preachers, if the preachers don't get their act together, then our churches are going to continue to have incredible problems and our people are going to continue to be hurt more and more. I'm, I'm, I need to move on. I get emotional about it. I just think we're in trouble with our pulpits. I think we, got, we, need, we have preachers that are not saved. If 50% of them don't believe the Word of God, if 50% don't believe there's such thing as right and wrong, that there's moral absolutes that's found in the Word of God, Gang, I'm telling you, half of the preachers today then must be lost because they don't know the Jesus that shed his blood and suffered on a cross that I know. They don't understand the Word of God that I read that that tells me what God did because of love and what Jesus did through his sacrifice in obedience to the Father and how that God, through his elective love, draws his sheep to him and convicts them of sin and in righteousness allows them to repent and, and by faith believe in Christ alone. Something has gone tragically wrong in our pulpits today. Number six, verse 22, is popularity. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Heroes means powerful, valiant means forceful. The idea is that there are those who serve their own appetites, pervert justice to appease themselves, having rejected the one who is really in charge. They reject the one, the only one, who through creation is the only permanent one who is transcendent and has the right of obedience for his glory and the one we should seek after. Those are the six woes. That's the six clusters of stinky grapes that were produced. Now, let me just touch on the therefores. Verse 13, you see there, you can read this later. Therefore, my people go into exile. Verse 14, therefore Sheol, which is death, has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. Verse 24, there's a therefore. Therefore, as the tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into flames, so their root will become like rot and their blossoms blown away 
as dust. Verse 25, my, my translation has on account. That's the same word as the other therefores. I, think, I don't know why they just didn't translate it therefore. Verse 25, therefore the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. Now, what, what Isaiah is writing is that therefore is, first of all, there's decay, then there's destruction, then there's deportation, then there's ultimately death. Now, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I want us to go back to our story for a moment. I want you to look at verse 5. We've seen the expectation. The landowner did all of this because he loved the vineyard, okay? And he expected good quality. There was frustration. What? Exasperation. What more could I have done? What more could I have done? Now, let's talk about the decision, and then I'll close it out, okay? Let me tell you, verse 5, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove the hedge, and then in verse 6, I'll also charge the clouds to rain no more. First thing he does is he removes a hedge. Now, again, what's a hedge? What's a hedge? It's a what? Someone say it loud. It's, it's a barrier, isn't it? It's a barrier. A hedge is a protection ring. I, I told the first service, I don't know how you pray, but in my quiet time every morning when I'm through with my Bible reading and I do my prayer time, before I close out my prayer, I always pray a hedge of protection around my family. I pray a hedge of protection around my wife, Paula. I pray a hedge of protection around my girl and my boy. I pray a hedge of protection around my grandkids. A hedge is a protective barrier. A a hedge keeps the good guys in and keeps the bad guys out. Now, what God says here is that he's going to remove the hedge from his vineyard. The restraints are going to be taken away. All sorts of enemies will walk right in. Weeds will grow uncontrollably. Could it be that some of the rise of wickedness that we're seeing in our nation today that we read about and we think, how in the world? It's almost like we can't get our head around. How can this be happening in the nation where I grew up? How can that happen? Could it be that a sovereign God, because of the growing lawlessness and wickedness of a people, could it be that he's just pulled a hedge back and said, you want it, you got it, Get after it. Hmm? Now, not only that, notice God will shut the clouds. If there's one thing a vineyard needs to grow grapes, grow fruit, it's moisture. Okay? Now, I don't think we need to take this too far because there's a principle here. It's not that he's going to not have any rain. The principle is God's going to do whatever he needs to do in every way he needs to do it to get the attention, not just to help us get back to growing good fruit, but to stop bad fruit from growing. I want to tell you something, gang. Here's what I believe. The problem in the United States of America is not economic. You're not going to hear that in this race coming up. The problems in the United States of America is not military. The problems in the United States of America are spiritual. Huh? It's God is a spiritual being. We're spiritual beings. 
And we can argue economics, we can argue military might, we can argue all of that stuff. But I want to tell you, isn't it amazing when God's people get filled with the Holy Spirit of God and are willing to follow after God? Isn't it amazing what God does, you see? Let me tell you, the, the therefores all came to pass. By the way, verse 7 is where he zaps them. You know, he says, it's you, it's you. All of the therefores came to pass with the snap of his finger. God snapped, and the enemies of God came running to do the bidding of God. When God wants to do something, God will use anybody, even the ungodly, to accomplish his purposes. And so God snapped a finger, and the ungodly came running. 722, the ungodly puppet of Assyria came and carried away the northern tribes. They basically became the lost tribes, and they basically ceased to, they intermarried and intermingled, and they cease to exist. I want to tell you, God is sovereign. The purposes of God hold true. 722, Assyria came in, took away 10 tribes. 586, Babylon, another puppet of God. Enemy, sure. They thought they were winning. God's saying, I'm just using you, idiot, to do what I want you to do. In 586, Babylon came in, carried Judah, the two, Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, away. Now, gang, give me a minute. And I'm through. And I, in fact, I, I want to be sure, I'm going to read a little bit because I want to be sure that I, I get it right, okay? I said earlier that what may be legal does not necessarily mean that it's moral according to God, okay? One pastor said that grace thrives when we feel how urgently we need to be saved from ourselves. Grace thrives when we feel how urgently we need to be saved from ourselves. Now, now let me read you something that I wrote down. Sin is very clever, okay? It's very clever. It always brings forward its reasons and its arguments so that we can justify our actions. That's what sin does. It's very smart. It, 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 it helps us rationalize. It, it gives us some kind of frame of reference to redirect our thoughts or redefine the terms so that we can justify ourselves, justify our actions. But the end of that is always destruction. Today we face a crisis of moral proportion. And I want you to know that the worldview that we wrestle with is this. Is there any meaning to life outside of myself? Now, gang, if we say that I am it, that it's me and mine in this I mentality, if, if, if it's about me, if my worldview is about me, I'm going to act some way. But if I wrestle through the worldview and I say there's someone beyond me, there's someone who is transcendent, there's someone who, who gives meaning to life beyond me, of course, that someone, of course, is God, then we have hope. If you study the history of the United States, you'll find that we've always had an allegiance to someone outside of ourselves, someone bigger than who we were, 
and that's God. Okay, now listen. Even we believed it so strongly that even when no one was looking, and even if it wasn't convenient, historically, we still did it because we still believed that there was someone bigger that's given to us in Scripture, and that someone is God. But that's fading away today. Somehow, we've lost the idea that God is outside of me. Somehow, we've lost the idea that God is transcendent. Somehow, we've lost the idea that God is on his throne, that God sees all, that God knows all, not just the actions, but God knows the motive of our hearts. Somehow, we've forgotten that God always judges in righteousness and holiness Somehow we've forgotten that there's always a consequence of sin. Somehow we've forgotten there is one that I owe my allegiance and my obedience. And frankly, if there's not a radical change, then we're going to see our nation become increasingly lawless. The truth is that we have a creator whose character is intact. We have a creator who authority is supreme. And the only option you and I have is to have a worldview that gets back to the Bible, to God's revelation of himself in Scripture. Unless moral authority, listen, unless moral authority lies beyond ourselves, then right will be wrong and wrong will be right. And we, like Israel, will keep producing stinky grapes to the next generation's chagrin. We must surrender the right to decide what is right and wrong. You, I, you, I, must decide the right to surrender what is right and wrong ourselves, and let the Bible address those areas of our life. We've got to allow the Bible to speak into those areas. And beloved, I tell you, it's easy to point it to everybody in general and not look in the mirror and be specific. I'm telling you today, daddies. I'm telling you today, mamas. I'm telling you today, teenagers. We have to give up the right to determine within ourselves what is right and wrong and let the Bible speak to the areas and let the Bible dictate to us what is right or wrong. We better have a biblical worldview and we better get back to it. Or we're going to, we are, but it'll increasingly cause more problems. Like the nation of Israel back then, will fall into judgment. Let me tell you, the northern tribes, after, after this oracle, after this song, after this parable, the, the northern tribes went away quickly. God acted quickly. Well, they were gone. But it took about 200 years for the southern tribes to go away. Now, let me tell you what that tells us. That tells us, number one, that sin always has consequences, and sin always brings with it a corresponding judgment. That's true in your life, gang. 
You persist in sin, you live in sin, I'm going to tell you, there's payday coming for that sin, okay? It's just the way it is. Every decision that you make has consequences. Good ones, good consequence. Bad ones, bad consequence, okay? However, the timing of that consequence resides with God alone on his throne. Why he chose quickly for the ten tribes to go, and why he chose later for the two tribes to go, that's his business. Sometimes we look around and we see everybody seems that doesn't like God and hates God and all that stuff. They, they, they seem to be having it all, do they not? You ever think about that, Warren Buffett, you know? And uh, I'm trying to think of some other guys I don't like, <laughs> you know? I mean, they seem to have it all, right? No. Jesus said, let them alone. They're having their payday now. The timing of the consequence of sin belongs to a sovereign God. But come it does. So what does all this mean for us today? Let me tell you what I think it means for us today, okay? I think we ought to stop looking around, although it's, we, we won't be able to stop that, but I certainly think we ought to be looking at ourselves. In other words, I think Tom needs to look in the mirror, and I think you need to look in the mirror. And I think you need to ask yourself, do I have a biblical or unbiblical worldview? Do I, have a, do I have a view of the world that, is, that follows the transcendent God of the Word of God who reveals himself in his scriptures? And based upon my view, that determines the decisions that I make and the directions I go with my family. Um, it's not easy, parents, today. There's so much pressure today. And, I'm, and I've said to you, I'm thankful I'm an old man, my kids are grown, but I'll tell you what I sure feel for my kids that are raising my grandkids, and they better not mess up or I'm going to pounce on them, you know. It's not easy today, but we have to have a view of the world that's consistent with the Scriptures personally, individually. You've got to do that. You've got to do that. It may be the way of repentance. It may be the way of brilliance. It may be the way of regeneration. It could be that all you've been doing is playing this at this thing called Christianity, and you've never had a, 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 a surrender of repentance and faith to God. You know, you may have just been playing the tune and uh, dancing the dance, and you've never been born again. All I know is that you and I are individually, and then when there's enough of us, whatever that number is, when there's enough of us, then God does what only God can do. Well, I want us to pray, okay? Um, why don't we... Uh, uh, why don't you come, Mr. Joint Man? Why don't you come just play something, sing something, whatever you want to do? I don't know, gang. I don't know if you want to come pray. I don't know if you just want to leave. I don't, you know, that's your business. I know I, I think I shared what I was supposed to share in the way I was supposed to share it. So uh, I kind of fulfilled my responsibility. So you guys kind of shake out. Um, I'm going to pray. We'll stand and...